So we've been talking about turning faith inside out. Turning faith inside out. What does that look like? Why is that important? What does it mean for us to do that? And this theme that we've been pressing in on for a few weeks now, actually since the beginning of the year, really comes to us out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, a chapter earlier than the text we've just read from, where Paul says, I believe, therefore I speak. I believe, therefore I speak. Right? The idea is that whatever's inside of you, whatever God has placed within you, whatever faith you have in Him, is meant to come out through your mouth specifically. Now, obviously, it's meant to come out in other ways too, through your hands and feet, and all of your actions are meant to represent your faith in Christ. But specifically, the challenge point that many of us face is the challenge of speaking more freely about Jesus and what He's done for us. So that's what we're talking about, and that's what I mean really when I, when I say, let's figure out how to turn our faith inside out. Now, why is this important? Well, again, the verses after the one that I just referred to in 2 Corinthians 4 put it all in perspective for us, because there Paul says, the grace of God is reaching more and more people essentially through us, through the proclamation of the message of Jesus Christ, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The grace of God is reaching more and more people. Now, unfortunately, we, we haven't seen that all that much, right? I can't say that we've seen lots of people coming into the kingdom of God, receiving the grace of God, being changed by it. And yet, all of us have been through that experience at one point or another, or we wouldn't be here right now. And trust me, there are people all around the world, more and more people that are receiving the grace of God and being fundamentally changed by it. It's happening all the time. Sometimes right around us, but without our knowledge. And in other cases, halfway around the globe. I, I like to think of it this way, that in different nations and at different times, there are seasons of harvest. Right? Jesus said that the harvest is ripe and plentiful, but the workers are few. So pray for the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers and send them out into the fields. The harvest is ripe. People's hearts are being prepared and drawn into relationship with God, being drawn to the grace of God. But the workers are few. So not only should we be praying for workers, but my contention is, and my belief uh, is that the teaching of God's Word is that all of us are meant to be among the workers, right? We're not just to pray that God would send somebody else. When we pray for workers, we're essentially saying, Lord, I'm willing to go. I'm willing to speak. I'm willing to be your messenger. Will you help me to do that? That's praying for more workers in a very personal way. So let's talk again then about the three M's of mission I talked about this, uh, just began to talk about this last Sunday, but I only got through the first one. 
and then we, were, uh, we ran out of time. And so I want to come back and pick up where I left off and really uh, just briefly review the first M uh, that I spoke of last Sunday and then dig in with you to the second one, and we'll come back and spend some more time on the third one um, over the weeks to come. So the three M's of being missional, and these are all mentioned and referred to, spoken of in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 specifically. The three M's, if you remember from last week, are the message the motivation, and the method. And each one is important in terms of this process of speaking what we believe, turning our faith inside out. So here's the question, right? If we're going to talk about motivation this morning, the second of the three M's, what is it that moves people like us to speak for Jesus more freely and more boldly? How does that work? What is it, actually, that moved Paul to speak as he did? And is there a secret, perhaps, is there a reference to the motivating force at work in his life that we can learn from? Well, there is. There is. But before we get to that, before we answer the question, what is it that moves people like us and like Paul to speak on Jesus' behalf, Let me just briefly remind you of the ground we covered last Sunday regarding the message of Christ. And again, this really comes straight out of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. We just heard Carrie give an example of how that worked in her life. And we've heard several others already over the last month give personal examples of how they have become a new creation in Christ. So what I shared with you last Sunday, again by way of review, is that the question at play here is how these words in 2 Corinthians 5.17 have been true in your life. How have they changed you? How have they impacted you? How have they altered who you are? How have you experienced the new life that Paul's talking about? That is the essence of your God story. And that story has power. The message that God has called you to proclaim is not just some abstract truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It's a very personal message. How has the person of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus changed your life? That's the message. If it has changed your life, you've got a story to tell. And that story is powerful. So the essence then of the message is your own story. It's the truth of who Jesus is and what he did combined with how that reality has changed your own life personally. Each one of us has a story to tell. Each one of us has an experience of new life in Christ that nobody else can deny and nobody else can refute. And those stories are powerful. They are, to others, the message of reconciliation. They're an invitation, right? To anyone that hears your story, there's an invitation implied. The same God who loves me and who sent Jesus to die for me so that I can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life offers the same to you. 
That's the invitation that's implied in the story that you have to tell. So let's go on then to talk about the motivation behind the message. You see, here's the trouble, right? You can have a great story to tell, but if you're never moved to tell it, nobody will be compelled to respond to it. It doesn't matter how great your story is. I mean, I think every God's story is great because what Jesus did for us is great. But even if you've got the most fantastic story that the world has ever you know, heard of, if you never share it, how effective is it? It's not going to compel anyone to respond. So somehow, if you've got, once you've got the message down, you've got the, this idea in mind that you have a story to tell and that that story is powerful, then you have to find within you, with the Spirit of the Lord's help, the motivation to speak that message. So the message in and of itself will not be effective unless you have the motivation to get it out, to speak it. So here's really uh, the essence of what I want to focus on with you in one sentence this morning. This is a one-point message. I'm just going to kind of circle around it and come back to it in a few different ways and illustrate it for you. But here's the heartbeat of what I want you to to think about and to, to learn from Paul's example. Are you ready? The most powerful motivation for sharing the message of Christ with others is being compelled by the love of Christ. Being compelled by the love of Christ. That's what Paul is describing for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So let me take you to the heart of what he's saying. But remember now, remember what, we re- what we've reviewed already from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, a chapter earlier, where Paul says, I believe, therefore I speak. See, there's an interesting connection between that statement in chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, and the statement we're about to look at in chapter 5. The connection is this. When Paul says, I believe, therefore I speak, we're not seeing the whole picture of how those two things are related and connected, how one leads to the other. But what he says in in chapter 5, what he explains to us in chapter 5 is the connection, the reason, the motivation behind speaking for Jesus. To speak what you believe about Jesus and how he's given you new life is, is to move, of course, from being a hearer of the gospel message to becoming a messenger yourself. But the trouble is, the problem is, the challenge is that we all have plenty of good reasons to keep silent. Sometimes it seems like the reasons to keep silent are more significant than the reasons to speak, doesn't it? You ever feel that way? There are plenty of, let's be honest, shall we, excuses that we can come up with to let somebody else do the talking rather than to feel compelled to do it ourselves. So to overcome that challenge, we have to find a compelling reason or motivation to speak. We have to be moved 
to speak. And frankly, for most of us, it's not enough to just know that we're supposed to. It's not enough to think of this as a, another should, right? Well, you really should do this because the Bible says that you're supposed to. I mean, that's true, but for most of us, that's not motivating, is it? What happens is if we think of it in those terms, it becomes just another shoulda, woulda, coulda. You guys, do anybody deal with shoulda, woulda, couldas? They are powerful, and they are not helpful. We live with these shoulda, woulda, couldas, and basically they're, um, they're regrets about our journey with God, regrets about our relationship with the Lord, things that we shoulda, woulda, and coulda done, but we failed to do because we weren't rightly motivated. So that's the problem, and I think it's a common problem not just in our church but in the church at least the church in America, and probably in many other parts of the world as well. We have lots of reasons that we come up with not to speak, and we're missing the most significant and powerful motivation to speak for Jesus. Let me give you a word to describe this problem, a single word that I think is a a great picture of the, the problem. It's a scientific word but I think it applies in the spiritual realm as well. It's the word inertia. Are you a science teacher? Yeah. I should have Dave come up here and talk about what inertia is. (laughs) But I'll just give you my own uh, brief definition. Inertia is the tendency for something, a particular object, to remain unchanged and unmoved. In other words, inertia creates a comfort zone. When something is experiencing inertia, it is not being moved or changed. It is inaction. Inertia is inaction. That's one word, not two. Not in action, but inaction. I-N-A-C-T-I-O-N. Inertia is inaction. It's not being moved. So in physics, inertia is a property of matter by which something continues in its existing state of rest until that state is changed by an external force. How am I doing? Am I doing okay here? (laughs) Got to check with the science teacher. So for something then to be moved by an external force, the external force exerted upon the object that's dealing, you know, that's experiencing inertia, the external force has to be greater than the force of the existing state. So, for example, right, this stool sitting here um, is in a state of inertia, of course, because it's an inanimate object. It can't move by itself. But we'll just, you know, I, I could play this out in other ways too, but the stool is in a state of inertia right now, Right? For the stool to be moved, there has to be an external force exerted upon the stool that's more powerful than than the weight of the stool itself. So, there you go. (laughs) The stool has been moved, right? for For a moment there, it was out of its state of inertia. Now, if I were to call a person up here, okay, let's try this. This will be fun, actually. Um, Mason, come on up. All right. That's what you get for sitting in the front. All right. 
Now, here's where it's a little trickier, right? If you have a person who, with a will of their own, um, they can resist being moved a little bit more than an inanimate object can, depending on how big the object is, right? Like if the stool were, you know, weighed 300 pounds, it would be more difficult to move. In this case, Mason can decide he doesn't want to be moved, and he can resist being moved, right? Let's see how this works. Ready? <laughs> All right. Now, what's the difference? Or this is a word picture here. What's the difference if a force comes along and Mason is thinking to himself, because he's made a decision of the will, that he wants to be moved? Then what happens? All right. That was better. Very good. Thank you. Good job, man. All right. We don't really need to clap. He really didn't do that much, but it's okay. <laughs> it was fun anyway. So what I'm trying to get you to think of here is the fact that many of us, are you ready for this? Or this is a hard truth, okay? Steal, steal yourself, brace yourself. Many of us are in a spiritual state of inertia. We don't want to be moved to speak. For Jesus. We're resistant to that idea. And that makes it harder. Not that the Lord can't overcome that. He can. But he's looking for those who are willing to be moved. God is looking for men and women who are willing to say, Lord, move me to speak for you. Motivate me to speak for you. Help me out. Lord, I want to do it. I yield myself to you. I yield my will to your will for me. I don't want to stay in a state of inertia. I want to be moved. When you bring yourself to that place of agreement with the Lord, with the Spirit of the Lord, and you're willing, you're submitted, you're surrendered, watch out, man. Great things can happen. God can move in incredible ways to use you to speak for him. And that's a beautiful thing. Here's a... Um, so here's what Jesus says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. Let me bring you right, uh, right into the, the one single verse that speaks of the motivation behind Paul's ministry. And again, Paul is a great example for us to think of here. Here's, here's what he says, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Right? So there's the faith that lies within Paul. There's a reflection of it. This is how it's connected back to those verses in 1 Corinthians 4 that I spoke of. I believe, therefore I speak. What does he believe? I believe, Paul says, that one died for all and therefore all died. All are subject to death, but all can live because Jesus died for them. But here's the key, right? Where's the connecting point between what he believes on the inside and what he speaks? He's moved to speak. He's motivated to speak because he's compelled by the love of Christ. 
For Christ's love compels us, Paul says. What compelled Paul to speak for Jesus is the same thing that's meant to compel us. The love of Christ. That's what it all comes down to. And so I'm, su- I'm suggesting to you that these words are really an explanation of Paul's motivation and his proclamation, I believe, therefore I speak. 2 Corinthians 5.14 is the explanation of how that works and why that works. Because Paul has been compelled to speak by the love of Christ. Christ's love compels us to speak, or at least it's meant to, if we will allow it to move our hearts and lips. If we want people to be compelled by our message, then we have to be compelled by love to share that message. Let me share an example of this with you. Uh, just a little illustration, and, and it's a great story that I've enjoyed. There's several great stories in this book uh, called Speaking of Jesus, written by a vineyard missionary named Carl Medeiros. And Carl has a long-standing ministry for the last 20 or 30 years in the Middle East, ministering to Muslims specifically um, in the Middle East. And I want to just share with you a fascinating example of how he um, speaks into the lives of his Muslim friends. He writes, one day, I saw my Muslim Arab friend sweating as he talked with my other friend, a fine, conservative-minded evangelical Christian. It looked like the two of them had locked horns in a battle to the death. It happened here in Colorado this past summer. We hosted a gathering of some of our longtime friends from the Middle East, and we brought in a bunch of American Christian friends to talk about God the Middle East, and how to bring hope to Muslim countries. There were about 45 of us together for three days. We were having a great time until I looked over and saw these two all tangled up. The next thing I knew, my Muslim friend, who was not yet a follower of Jesus, had gone out on the deck and was smoking a cigarette like his life depended on how fast he could suck it down. I walked out and nonchalantly said to him, hey, what's up, bro? And his response was, why the blankety-blank do these people want to convert me? Why can't they just leave me alone? I know that you don't want to convert me, right? Talk about a loaded question full of semantic nuance. Here's my answer. And what happened next? I asked him what he thought my other friend wanted to convert him to. He said, he wants me to be a Christian, but I'm a Muslim. I asked him then what he thought this friend meant by becoming a Christian. He wants me to stop living in the Middle East and loving my family. Well, I told him I was pretty sure that's not what this friend meant But if that's what conversion to Christianity is, then I agreed. He shouldn't convert. See, he said to me, I knew you weren't into conversion. No, I'm not, 
I said. Not like that. Not at all. I think you should stay in your country and love your family and be who God made you to be. Then I asked him this. What do you think God thinks when he looks down at all 6.5 billion people on the face of the earth? My Muslim friend answered, he thinks they're all screwed up. Yep, that's what I think God's thinking too. So what do you think God would like to do with all these messed up people? Muslims, Christians, Jews, Hindus, nothings, everythings. Well, he'd never thought of that before, and he wasn't sure how to answer. But he did say that God would probably want to help them not to be so screwed up. I agreed. So you might say then that God would like to convert all 6.5 billion people on earth, not to a religion, but to himself. He'd like everyone to be more like him, to be converted into him. But how would he do that? He'd need a converter, wouldn't he? I went on then to tell my friend that if he bought an appliance here in the United States and took it back to the Middle East, he'd need something to change the current from 110 to 220 volts. What's that called, I asked him. Uh, A transformer or a converter, he said. That's right. So what is God's transformer to get us all back the way that God wants us to be, to change us, to convert us? He gasped, literally. He paused, and then he said, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. I never thought of that. But it's Jesus. He's our converter. He got so excited that he called his wife out and told her the whole conversation. Then she started to cry. We sat on the deck and prayed that God's converter or transformer would change us into the current that can be connected to God himself and that he would do that with all of our friends. It was a profound moment. Amazing that just a half an hour earlier, he was about to bite this other guy's head off for trying to convert him, and now he sat with me in tears, praying to be converted. The power of words. And I would add, though he didn't write it, the power of love. Right? Why was Carl, think about it, this is the story behind the story. Why was Carl able to have a conversation like that? Because the one with whom he was having it was his friend. There was genuine love between them. I mean, think of the way that that love got appreciated and expressed by his Muslim friend at the beginning of the conversation. There was a sense of trust, a sense of deep and genuine friendship that they shared with one another, so much so that this man would be willing and able to express his frustration in the moment to Carl. 
And Carl, in his love for Christ and for his friend, was able to share with him and speak of Christ in a way that was receivable, not judgmental, but invitational. See, part of the problem, I think, that the church has is that sometimes we want to communicate the truth without love, right? Paul says, speak the truth in love. Why? Because then it's more powerful. Then it actually comes off as the truth, not just as judgment. So what does it mean for us to be compelled by the love of Christ. How does that work? Well, my friends, this is where we don't get a full explanation from the Apostle Paul, but what we do get, reading between the lines, is a sense that we have to go for it. We have to ask for it. We have to be willing to receive this from the Lord. And my own conviction is, and I believe the Bible teaches this in other places as well, that, this, that being compelled by the love of Christ is the work of God's Spirit within us. It's a fascinating term, really, a fascinating phrase. What does Paul mean when he says that he's compelled by the love of Christ? Is he talking about Christ's love for him? Or is he talking about his love for Christ? Or is he talking about Christ's love for the world? Yes. All of the above. That's the wonderful mystery of this phrase. To be compelled by the love of Christ is to recognize that God initiates, that he loves us first and supremely in and through the life of Christ. And then in response to that, as Carrie was explaining, we're called to love him in return. And when we begin to love him in return because of his love for us, What happens? Our hearts begin to to be transformed. Our character begins to be transformed. And his love for the world is imparted to us by the Spirit so that we can love the things that he loves and the people that he loves the way that he loves them. That's what it means to be compelled by the love of Christ. It's a bit complicated, but it's not convoluted. It's, it's, It's like a chain effect. It's like dominoes, like... If you receive the love of Christ, if you understand how much you're loved, and then you begin to love God in response to that, you would begin to invite God to give you his love for the world. And when all those things have happened, you're going to find yourself compelled in a new and deeper way to speak on Jesus' behalf. I love the way that John talks about this dynamic of love and the way that God initiates and then we respond. Uh, there's a classic passage in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. Listen to these words from the Apostle John, who was called the beloved, the beloved disciple. Dear friends, he writes, let us love one another. And I think he's talking not just of those within the church, but as fellow human beings. Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. It's the very essence of who he is and how he operates. 
And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So folks, what we want to do is we want to get to the place where the words that we speak are a reflection of that reality. And we're eager to tell our story. We're eager to speak of Jesus because we're compelled by the love of Christ to speak on his behalf. Let me give you another little illustration, just a brief one. I shared last Sunday a story about a friend of mine, fellow pastor named Anthony Yaboa, um, who's um, an African man from Ghana um, who lives here in Lansing, but he goes back and ministers uh, routinely in both Ghana and in the Ivory Coast and in other African nations. An incredible ministry, an incredible God story of how he was saved. Maybe you remember parts of that from last Sunday. If not, you can go back and listen to the podcast on our website he told me another story. Uh, about a week ago, I ran into him at a concert, at the, at the, um, uh, the worship concert that was hosted by our sister church. And uh, Justin Rizzo, I think, was the worship leader or worship artist that they'd brought in. And uh, Bishop Yaboa was there for the concert. So during the intermission, I had a chance to touch base with him and talk, talk with him. And we got to talking about worship events like this. And he was reminiscing about a particular concert that he'd attended years ago in Chicago that was put on by Jesus Culture. And if you're not familiar with Jesus Culture, it's a a worship band um, that hosts concerts and events all around the nation. Um, It really came out of the Bethel Church in uh, Redding, California. And so Anthony, um, Bishop Yeboa, had attended this Jesus Culture event in Chicago years ago, and he was reflecting on that experience because this event was a little bit similar and uh, he, he told me that he went back to his hotel that night after the Jesus Culture concert, and he was in the elevator, and a young man, uh, about 14 years old, came into the elevator uh, after the concert, and the young man, the 14-year-old, looks to this you know, 50, 60-year-old man and says to him, um, Sir, may I ask you a question? And of course, Bishop Yeboah says, certainly, yeah, what would you like to know? And the little boy, the young 14-year-old says, are you saved? Are you saved? Now, think about that, right? What would compel a 14-year-old boy to ask a 60-year-old African man if he's saved? In an elevator. How does that happen? Why would a young boy do such a thing? And Bishop Yeboa went on to explain to me that he'd come to understand that that young boy was so moved by the concert, so moved by the love of Christ in response to what he'd experienced that evening, that he felt compelled to ask the question. Out of the blue, I mean, it's, it's a bit odd. It might seem a bit unusual uh, to do it like that in that moment. But that's 
That's an example. That's an illustration of being compelled by the love of Christ. I'm not saying that that was maybe the most effective way uh, to present the story uh, or to present the gospel, but in that moment, that 14-year-old kid didn't know any better. He was just compelled to speak. And thankfully, his question landed on someone who likewise had been touched and changed by the love of God. And they had a nice conversation after that. Here's, here's the bottom line. What I'm saying is, if you're lacking in love for other people, you will never open your mouth. I know that's a little bold, it's a little challenging, perhaps a little convicting, but, but we got to get serious about this. we got to bring our hearts before the Lord, and, and we got to kind of take a good, hard, honest look at where we stand. Are you moved and compelled by the love of Christ, or aren't you? And if you're not, why not? What's the problem? Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just making a bunch of noise. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I gain all that I, if I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to the hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. That, that's pretty serious. I mean, what this insight challenges us to think about is whether we have love, Right? Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if the love of Christ has filled your heart to overflowing, guess what's going to flow out through your words? In closing, let me just be the first to admit, I'm grappling with this like many of you are. But I feel compelled to teach on it. I feel compelled by the love of Christ for us to work on this together, to press into it. And my hope, my desire, my prayer for us as a church is that all of us will agree before the throne of God to say, Lord, we're ready to be moved. We're willing to speak for you. you got to help us. We need your spirit. We need boldness. We need courage. We need your spirit to move but we are willing to partner with you. We are submitted, Lord, to being your messengers. So I want to just encourage you as we wind this down this morning to offer your heart to God and to take some time, maybe this week even, just to pray through this. Lord, am I compelled by your love? And if I'm not, what needs to change? How how is that going to shift? How can I break through, or how, Lord, how can you help me break out of this state of inertia that I'm in spiritually? Here's a, here's a dangerous prayer. I want to pray this over you, but I'm going to ask you to pray it with me this morning. So let me ask you to stand. We're going to close with this. I want to pray over you and into you the love of Christ that we just spoke of.
And I'm going to invite you to pray this with me by repeating it after me. This is a dangerous prayer. I'm warning you. This is the kind of prayer that will move you when God answers. If you're willing to let him do that, then speak it with me. God, would you let the love of Christ compel me to share my faith with others? Please give me a greater love for those you want to draw into relationship. I invite your spirit to pour out a new and deeper love for Christ and for other people into my heart so that I will speak more freely and speak more boldly of the one who is the lover of my soul. In Jesus' name.